Last week we talked about the organization of the Apostles' Creed, how it's a threefold structure pointing to the Trinity, organized around the Trinity. We talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we talked about the Father and his role in creation and providence, and then the Son as we start to think about a very specific category of providence, which is salvation. And when you read the Apostles' Creed, with the lens of salvation. I want to think about what it means to be saved. How can someone be saved? Remember, where we started in the Heidelberg was the sin and misery section because we looked at the law of God and we looked at the holiness of God and we said, oh no, I am in trouble. I, uh, it's, it's our Isaiah moment. I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Paul uh, moment. Who will deliver me from this body of death? We've got to have a salvation answer. And when we get to the salvation answer, as you look through the Apostles' Creed, the Heidelberg has a lot to say about it, and we'll work through some of this. But, but one of the really essential places that it begins, if you're looking at Lord's Day 11, maybe questions 29 and 30, if the Bible is clear on anything, It is clear that there is only one way of salvation. Why is the Son of God called Jesus? That is Savior. This is question 29. Because he delivers us from all our sins and saves us, and because no salvation is to be sought or found in any other. And then question 30, and we remember when we talked about why the catechisms were written and the context in which this particular catechism was written, remember there's a struggle in this portion of Germany, as was common in Europe, between Catholicism and Protestantism. And the doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church had corrupted over the years had moved away from Scripture and toward doctrines of man. And so in that context, when it says... Salvation is through Christ alone, and you don't look for it in anyone else. There's a question 30 that says, well, when you say not anyone else, are you talking about the saints and Mary? Because, I mean, come on. And that's the context in which the question has to be asked and answered. And so it says, they do not. They being, um, if you seek your salvation in the welfare of saints or anywhere else is... Uh, is that believing only in Jesus? And the answer is no, that's not believing only in Jesus. They might say it with their lips, for though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny the only Savior, Jesus Christ. If you say you need something else besides Jesus, anything else, Jesus plus your works, Jesus plus the saints or Mary praying on your behalf, Jesus plus anything you would add to Jesus... The catechism says you're not believing in Jesus alone for salvation. And therefore, you're not believing in him at all. Because that's the only thing Jesus offers. Jesus doesn't offer, hey, take your, uh, take your pagan practices or take your other religions, take your, uh, your false gods and throw me in the mix and we'll get to a really good place. Jesus says it is me, all me, only me, or not me at all. And what happens, not just in 16th century Europe, what happens is people create a Jesus of their own imagination, a Jesus of their own making, not Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. 
And then that religion, surprise, surprise, fits their lives exactly. They get to do what they think is right in their own eyes. They get to be the ultimate authority and judge of truth and what's right or wrong. And they get to sprinkle some Jesus in and feel pretty good about that, like they're covering bases. And the catechism and the creeds say, no, if you add anything to Jesus, you lose all of Jesus. And Jesus is the only way. The scriptures are incredibly clear on this. And that, just for a moment, thinking about uh, why that's right. When we talked about sin and said we needed to be saved, who did we say we needed to be saved from? God. We needed to be saved from God. Why? Because our offense was against God. Our offense is against the holiness of God. So if the question is, well, how can I be saved from God because of the offense I've committed against God? Who do you think should be allowed to answer that question? Man? Should I be able to say to God, look, God, I've thought about it. I've crunched the numbers. I really think this level of obedience, this level of church attendance, and this level of tithing are enough. And that's what I'm going to give you. You're welcome. No, but that's how a lot of people want to live, is they have a sense that they owe God something, but they get to decide what the something is. And what scripture says is, no, God gets to decide what it is. God gets to decide what's required for salvation, and the answer is faith in Christ. Nothing more and nothing else. And so there are many people who would describe themselves as Christians, and when you dig into, what do you believe? It's a very fair question. (laughs) What you're going to find is they believe Jesus plus a whole lot of other things, which isn't believing Jesus at all. It's taking away with one hand what you gave with the other. Uh, Romans 4, strong on this. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. One excludes the other. You can't have both. And the, the tragedy, that's a risky word, What's so sad about public perception of Christianity by non-believers is that Christianity is the law religion. It's the all about what you can and can't do, and you, by your own strength, staying on the straight and narrow and doing enough to appease God. That's every other religion in the world, (laughs) except Christianity. Christianity is the one who says, yeah, there was that covenant and man couldn't keep it. And God, by his grace, kept it for them and now applies salvation by faith and not by those works. And so it's really tragic that you can watch if you really examine the lives of people who think they're living free from God, and they have all this freedom, and they're not living under the burdens of what Christianity requires, what you will find is that they're living under a heavier 
load than any Christian ever does. They are living under a heavy burden of slavery and of obligation than any Christian ever does. And they've made it for themselves. And they call it freedom, and it's not. So the exclusivity of Christianity. Questions about that? Thoughts about Jesus as the only way? What do you say if somebody says, well, isn't that mean of God? Do we have an answer for that? Why is God so mean that it's his way or the highway? We've got to have an answer somewhere, guys. I see a lot of shivering. First Sunday ever that it's cold in here. What's the answer? Just try. Karen. He's God. We don't really get to judge the fairness of God because when we do that, we're assuming that we view reality more truthfully and rightly than God does. Yeah, there's a justice matters. What people want God to do is to deny his justice as an act of love. But there's nothing loving about God denying himself. There's nothing loving about God failing to be God. Uh, In fact, it would undo the whole known universe, so probably be pretty unloving in the end. Just that part's free. All right, good thoughts. I'm going to run quickly through these. So you all ask questions, engage. You've got the, the Heidelberg books. I just want to go through some topics that the creed draws our attention to, and then the Heidelberg expands upon as it works through this set of questions. So uh, next is the three offices of Christ. What are the three offices of Christ? Prophet, priest, and king. What does it mean that Christ is our prophet? What is a prophet? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Yes, a prophet is someone who brings the word of God from God. That's a prophet. We sometimes think about prophets as being, well, they're the ones who tell the future what's going to happen. That's one kind of prophecy, but the word prophecy is much bigger than that. The word prophecy is the words from God. I like to say the word of God for the people of God. I like to say it because it's in the Book of Common Worship for like the last 400 years, but uh, I, I plagiarize everything. So Christ is our prophet. Were there prophets before Christ? You guys ever open the Old Testament there? It's good. Yeah. There were prophets before Christ. They were from God. God sent those prophets. And was what they said true? Yes. And was what they said pointing to a greater prophet? Yeah. Those prophets had to repeat themselves. Those prophets died. Those prophets had their own sin. Those prophets at times practiced hypocrisy. So they were prophets from God, spoke the truth, and they always pointed forward to a greater prophet. What about Christ as priest? What is a priest? Right, someone who brings the people before God and often will make sacrifices on their behalf. 
someone who makes the people able to meet with God. That's a priestly role. Um, in the New Testament, it talks about, in a little different category, the priestly role that parents play in their families. We are preparing and equipping and making able our families to meet with God. That's what leaders are doing in a church service, is we are helping people to be able to meet with God. In the Old Testament, how'd they have to do that? How could a priest make the people able to meet with God? Blood. Lots and lots of blood. Tons of blood. Goat blood, cow blood, sheep blood, all the blood. And then occasionally, when they get tired of blood, there'd be grain. <laughs> I don't know. They had to make these sacrifices. Oh, we got our hot water song. It's good. Uh, the priests would make these sacrifices. Were, were there priests in the Old Testament? Yes, lots of priests in the Old Testament. An entire priestly class in the Old Testament. The Levites. This is great. Were the priests in the Old Testament true priests of God? Yeah. And did they do things that mattered? Yeah, they obeyed God and they prepared the people to be able to meet with God. But were those priests always pointing forward to a greater priest? Yes, half the book of Hebrews is about this, about that specific point. That those priests, how did you know that they weren't the final answer? How did you know there had to be a bigger Better, better, greater priest. They had to keep doing the sacrifices again and again and again and again. More blood, more blood. And so in Hebrews it says those sacrifices had to be offered continually. And those sacrifices had to be offered for the priest's own sin. When the elders or I stand up there in the pulpit and are helping you to be ready to meet with God, we also have to help ourselves be ready to meet with God. We have to confess our own sin. We have to ask the Spirit to come work in us so that we can worship. And so there needed to be a greater priest who was not inadequate. Old Testament priests are inadequate. Priests and their families are inadequate. Good from God, doing what God commanded, and inadequate. <laughs> New Testament church leaders, inadequate. But you know who's not inadequate? Christ the perfect priest who offered a sacrifice once. Once, and not for his own sin, because he didn't have any. A sacrifice offered for the sins of his people to make them able and ready to meet with God. Amazing. All right, prophet, priest, what's the third one? King. Were there kings in the Old Testament? Lots of kings. How were those kings, by and large? <laughs> Not the most impressive bunch. You know, I really like the ones where it says, the only thing it says of the king is, he was even worse than his dad. <laughs> Refer back two chapters and then multiply it by something. He was really bad. Now, there were some good kings in the Old Testament. There were kings that restored faithful worship in Israel. David was a good king. There were kings that led God's people rightly with justice and righteousness. But by and large, the Bible is a great illustration of what happens when you let humans lead large groups of people for long amounts of time. It descends into, and each did what was right in his own eyes. That's where it goes. And so those kings, even the good ones, were always pointing forward. We're reading about this a lot in the Psalms, because in the Psalms, it'll talk about kingship a lot. 
And then we'll talk about David's kingship a lot. And David's kingship was good. But every now and then in these Psalms, we're finding it'll say something like a kingdom without end. Eternal peace. Well, I don't know if you guys noticed, but David did not succeed at that whole eternal peace for a kingdom thing. That was never his to provide. That was always pointing forward to the greater king. And then that greater king blew our minds, right? Because that greater king shows up on a colt of a donkey to be paraded into Jerusalem, the city of Israel's kings. This is going to be amazing, you guys. And the people know this is going to be amazing. So they pull out their palm fawns and they sing their hymn. And they're all, it's going to be great. Hosanna, right? This is our king. He's here. And then what does the king decide to do? Fulfill his role as priest and die for his people. On a cross with a sign that said what? The king of the Jews. That's the king that we needed. That's the king those other kings were always pointing forward toward. Um, We would not have accepted that king, by the way. We would have put him on a cross and killed him, just so you know. Uh, But that king uh, conquered for his people. But what needed to be conquered were not ancient Near Eastern kingdoms. What needed to be conquered were sin and death and hell. And that king conquered them. So Jesus Prophet, priest, king. Three offices. Questions about that? Y'all are excitable this morning. More coffee. All right. Let's talk about... Oh, one other thing that the catechism speaks to is this idea of sharing in his anointing. Um. Let me read this. We have God's complete word in the Bible. That is more than any of the Old Testament prophets ever possessed. We also have the privilege of coming boldly into the very presence of our Heavenly Father. Even the high priest of Israel could never do that. In the Old Testament period, the kings of Israel ruled over one tiny nation, the nation of Israel. But we are called to rule the whole world for God's glory and honor. And it is all because we really do share in Christ's anointing. Ever think about what's yours because you are in Christ? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty delightful Sunday afternoon episode. I, I could see myself sitting, uh, well, now that it's, you can actually be, stand to be outside. I could find myself sitting outside with a cigar thinking about what it means that I share in Christ's anointing. What is mine because of him? And think through those offices, prophet, priest, and king, and all this other stuff that they were trying to accomplish, good, because God had commanded it. They wanted to be able to come into the presence of the God. They wanted to be able to come before the throne of grace. They wanted to be able to to be safe and secure in their kingdom. They wanted to be able to know the truth of God, what God had said about reality, all those things they wanted. And there's all this complexity in the Old Testament that delivered a little tiny fragment of each of those things. And because we share in Christ's anointing, we actually have the fullness of all of those things that are ours. It is a remarkable event, what happens in Christ, where this this people, this salvation, this relationship with his covenant people that God had put on display in the Old Testament is suddenly 
burst, exploded out into the world so that every tribe and people and nation can come under this blessing. And the blessing gets bigger, not smaller, than it was in the Old Testament. Um, What sacrament does that tie back to? That's a good trick question. This is why we believe what we believe about baptism. (laughs) is because if baptism is the same or more restrictive than the mark of the covenant in the Old Testament, circumcision just for male Jews, and if we say baptism is just for, and anything we make makes baptism narrower, it's only for adults who have a credible profession of faith. It's only for... That's a possible interpretation. But the mental challenge for us is that makes the covenant smaller. And everything else about the New Testament made the covenant grander, greater, more inclusive. Um, So you start to see how these things tie together. Questions about sharing and his anointing? All right, let's do a lightning round then. Jesus, humanity and divinity. Discuss amongst yourselves. (laughs) <laughs> why is it important that jesus is fully human we covered this a few weeks ago you, only only real human real man can die for the sins of humans real man bulls and goats wouldn't cut it nothing other than a human would why did jesus have to be fully divine This one's harder, isn't it? There's the pragmatic. Uh, oh yeah, there's so there's a there's a you can't be born without original sin under normal human generation, human mother and father. That's part. Part of it is the pragmatic argument of no human could no only fully human could have perfectly kept the law coming being born under sin. But there's another argument. You remember from a few weeks ago, why else must Jesus be fully divine? How deep is our debt? Infinite. A finite being cannot pay an infinite debt. And so Jesus had to be fully divine because we needed his infinitude. That sounds right. uh, To pay our infinite debt. It's confusing sometimes, guys, and it's hard as you read through the scriptures to think about those two natures without confusing them. To think, sometimes we want to look at a certain thing that Jesus did and said, oh, he did that only in his humanity, not in his divinity. Or he did that only in his divinity and not in his humanity. And we just have to be really careful with that as we read and think through the scriptures because we don't get to split Jesus in half. <laughs> It's, it's, it's two natures that are never confused within Jesus, but they're also within one person. The same way that the Trinity is three persons in one God, and you, you can't pull them apart and stretch all that uh, too far. The same is true of Jesus' two natures. You've got to be careful as you read the scriptures and think about Christ, that you take into account both of those natures and that you don't try to separate them with an iron even that, like you see, you talk about the stuff, you stumble into heresy. They are separate, in, but they're together. Makes perfect sense, right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. 
Yeah, that's the right answer. Anything other than a shrug, you go into heresy right there. I'm just telling you, setting you up for it. Questions or thoughts about two natures of Christ? I think that's a good way to think about it. I, I, I think there are things like that that we will understand more fully and clearly with glorified minds. I don't know that finite created things will ever grasp the full depths of some of these truths. And it's hard to know sometimes. Am I not getting this because I have a fallen, broken mind and I need... Christ to glorify my mind, or am I not getting this? Because this is one of those things that even before the fall, Adam and Eve were like, nah, that's creator stuff. That's, <laughs> that's not for creatures. I don't know. And, and that being said, we have a book on our book table called Delighting in the Trinity, which yeah. God has given some of us mere mortals greater <laughs> insight into his trinity. This book will shock you if you've never read it in that it's actually an enjoyable read <laughs> on a really, really difficult subject. I'm not saying you'd knock out 50 pages of this in a weekend. You move through it rather methodically. But Reeves is a good writer. And I know a lot of people who have said this book impacted their devotional life, their personal love of God more than, than uh, or as much as any other that they'd ever read. Uh, Delighting in the Trinity is a great book for that. It's also moved to the top of people's list of books they would actually get an unbeliever to help them understand who this God is. Yep. I think a high endorsement of the book. Indeed. So you're saying humanity and divinity is indivisible, but it is dividable. Why do you have There are two distinct natures that are not mingled or confused Confused, and yet when Christ acts, he acts out of one with two natures. You're not looking at what Christ does and say this situation was 90% divinity, 10% humanity, which is what I think we would intend to do. Chime in, bail me out of this one. <laughs> Think of it as like a glass of like oil and water where they're completely separate from each other. But in the same glass? But in the same glass, and if you try to pour it out, you can't just pour oil or water out. You pour both out. That's a great analogy. Uh, it will break down eventually. Somewhere right. that I will become a heretic for agreeing with it. Somewhere. Right. But I think that is a great uh, starting place to think about it. Yeah, it's very helpful. Because God can't die. <laughs> and man can't raise himself. Yeah. But really, you guys, if, if we had been given the choice to create the plan for how mankind was going to be saved, we would have totally come up with this on our own. We'd, really, we would have done this. Yikes. Active and passive obedience. 
the creed and the catechisms talk about two kinds of obedience. What are we referring to with Jesus and his active and passive obedience? What is active obedience? Yes. Yeah, obeying the law. Resisting the temptation to sin and obeying the law. Doing the things that God commands. Refraining from doing the things that God forbids. That's Christ's act of obedience. Why did Christ, well, how obedient was Christ? Perfectly obedient. Did he have to be perfectly obedient? If he was going to save anybody, right? If, if what we were looking for was partial obedience, I can do that on my own. If what we were looking for was something that smells sort of like, and if you hold it at the right angle and the right light looks like obedience, I can get there without Jesus. What I absolutely could not do was perfect obedience. And so Jesus had to perfectly keep the law. What is passive obedience? When we speak of Jesus' passive obedience, what are we talking about? Mm, not quite. This one's harder. Is it, I'll try to explain it first in a roundabout way. Does the law tell you, if you're going to perfectly obey the law, does the law tell you that you have to go to Golgotha stretch your arms out on a cross for a crime you didn't commit and be crucified for the sins of other people. The law doesn't tell you that. None of you should do that. Okay? <laughs> that is not a requirement of the law. But was it the will of his father? So passive obedience, a good way to think about it, is obedience to the will of God that exists even outside of the law. The, the father had decreed that the son would take on human flesh, become incarnate, live a life of that perfect active obedience, and then carry that active obedience to the cross and be crucified. Jesus didn't have to do that. Could he not summon thousands of angels and get them off that cross pretty quick? He didn't even need the angels, you guys. He could just decide not to be on the cross anymore. He doesn't need the help. But what did he do instead? He submitted to the will of his father. Not my will, but thy will be done. That submission to the father's will, even outside of and beyond the law, that's passive obedience. And so when we talk about Jesus's passive obedience, we are very specifically talking about his willingness, even his desire to go to the cross and to be crucified for our sins. So can you equate passive obedience with submission to God's will? I think you're on a really overlapping Venn diagram. I'd want to think through where they don't overlap, but I think for practical purposes, you're on a really overlapping Venn diagram. When you accept... What's, what's, a, what's a more meaningful word than accept. Embrace. When you pursue 
carrying out God's will in your life, even beyond the law. The things that you don't have to do under the law, but the things that you have come to understand are God's will for you. I think that's a big overlapping circle with, with passive obedience. Yeah. Praying your will be done is itself an act of passive obedience. Yeah. Other thoughts on that? Yeah. I've delivered the law down path, but now that I've seen that it's really more about who Christ is and I am not. That's a great. The pursuit of this law keeping, apart from a heart submitted to the will of God, is not pleasing to God. That's tithing on the herbs in the Pharisee's garden. That's all sorts of things that we can do for show, and that show could be for others or it could be for ourselves. All sorts of things that we can do not because we desire to be aligned with the will of God. Now, somebody who says they desire to be aligned to the will of God, but thinks they don't have to obey the scriptures to do that, that's not good either. That's, <laughs> those two go together. Uh, but one without the other, very, very dangerous. All right. Uh, death and resurrection. What do we mean when we talk about the death of Jesus? All right, that one's a little straightforward, isn't it? We mean the death of Jesus. (laughs) Did Jesus have to die? Oh, great addition. Yes. If we were going to be saved, yes, Jesus had to die. Otherwise, we were going to die in our sins. Not just our bodies dying but our bodies dying with our soul in sin and the debt to sin. This kind of second death. Um, And so Jesus died the same reason all the animals I was talking about in the Old Testament died. He was just effective. (laughs) They were illustrating something. (laughs) He was accomplishing something. That sells the Old Testament sacrifices a little short because they were accomplishing something in God's economy, but they weren't accomplishing everlasting forgiveness for the sins of people. Um, So yeah, that's why Jesus had to die. What's the phrase that the Apostles' Creed uses when it talks about Jesus' death that there can be some confusion about that we probably want to talk about? Descended into hell. What does that mean? Stephen? You're super helpful. <laughs> super helpful. Stephen taught this, and uh, these kids are laughing because it was they taught it in the Heidelberg Catechism class for the kids. And uh, I think y'all really dug into it, didn't you, about, about what this means. Um, whatever specifically is being said, <laughs> the spirit of the thing is that 
Jesus went underneath the fullness of debt, condemnation, and wrath that each of us would have received if we died in our sins. There is nothing about what we would have received that he did not receive in that time. Uh, and I'll let Stephen during the lunch give you the longer answer, what all those things mean. I remember growing up Catholic, and we did not say that in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. Why? Why? It's funny, a lot of Protestants take it out. Um, I used to not say it. I mean, just full disclosure, when, when I was reciting the Creed publicly uh, earlier in life, I would just be quiet and, and silent out that line. Um, I've since changed that position in part just because something's old doesn't mean it's right. A lot of things are old and can be wrong. But a lot of Christians for a couple thousand years who've thought at least as deeply and likely way more deeply about these things than I ever have wrote it and say it. And at some point there's kind of a humble submission to Oh, I'm willing to separate myself from the lowercase c Catholic visible church because my brilliant brain and tender conscience can't say these words. So I, I don't know. Uh, Why did you have problems with that? Because I don't think that it is literally true at the word level. I don't think true at the concept level, but not at the word level. I think so, and I think I think at the I mean even the concept of descended. Hell is not beneath us. Right? But then you're like, well, okay, is this really what you're arguing about? Right? You see, look. You were young once, you remember. That's why I think your distinction the shield, like the Hades, yeah. Shield, That's how you get out of this. That's the way out. I just didn't want to take it. Uh, <laughs> just real quick on that. Hell, when we say, when we say hell, we're, what we're saying is eternal hell. Like, that is a place that will be in the future, but it's not now. So when you die, we say you go to hell. It's not, in my opinion, strictly accurate because there is a lake of fire where the devil and the demons and everybody who uh, the, the, the other side of this coin often helps people see it faster, which is if you die right now and your body goes into the ground and your spirit goes somewhere, we call that somewhere heaven, right? But we know that that heaven that we're describing is not the eternal home of those who are in Christ because we're going to get bodies. It's a physical, tangible new heavens and new earth when we get glorified bodies back. So there is a heaven that is not the eternal place. Now apply it on the other side. Is there a hell that is not the eternal hell that is the disembodied location for those who are not in Christ? That's, does that help? I didn't grow up on any of this stuff, so this was very challenging for me to wrap my brain around. I grew up thinking that heaven was the last place and that we actually turned into angels and got harps. And then, I don't know. You and 
<laughs> I learned, by God's grace, I, I learned a couple things along the way. Um, yeah. How do we square it with like Peter referencing like Tartarus as like a present reality or things like that? John, that's exactly the conversation I was seeking to avoid. <laughs> no, it's a fabulous question. It's the right question. Uh, let me punt on it till either lunch or next week and, and wrap this up. The, uh, yeah, you've got to square <laughs> Yeah, there are New Testament texts that can be reconciled with this, but at first reading, it, it's tough. And that's part of why I wouldn't say it either, is I just wasn't sh- sure enough. Um, and to the point I made earlier, the reason why I changed my mind is not, I, I've now come to accept the position that is right. But the reason why I changed my mind on saying the creed was because it's not because it's old, therefore I should believe it. It's because if it's old and I'm not confident, the tie doesn't go to the runner. The tie goes to 2,000 years of church history. I've got to be really confident. I'm not saying I can't overrule the Westminster Confession of Faith. I take some exceptions. But you've got to be really confident and thoughtful and studied and prayerful to say, I just can't agree with this. And if you're just in that kind of place of, I don't know, it doesn't seem right to me, but look how... Speaking for myself and nobody else's heart. But look how smart and thoughtful you look if you're the one who doesn't say that sentence and somebody after church asks you why you don't. That's not where you want to be. Don't be there. Because he did. <laughs> no, that's not him. <laughs> I didn't say say it because I wasn't convinced that that was the best way to word that phrase and that there are scripture texts that on the face of them are challenging to reconcile with that. Um, And if we want, we can deep dive into this next week under Stephen's leadership, which I think would be amazing. There's a broader theme, which is why this is even an issue, is there, in a lot of creeds and a lot of catechisms, there there are things that says and we read it and someone will say well that means it, this and it doesn't actually mean that like if it meant, the, if it meant what it meant at the word level nobody would accept it but we accept it because we impute some kind of meaning to this word and so part of that is playing into what Paul's saying is when you do this with all these other creeds catechisms it, we take an exception because it's like this is if you take it at the literal word level it can't mean this and nobody intends it to mean this and so if I put on my Supreme Court nerd hat for a minute, which many of you know that I am, uh, you hear words thrown about in the media about originalism and textualism. All right, so textualist is this means exactly what the words say. Nothing else matters. Context doesn't matter. Authorial intent doesn't matter. This means what the words say. Originalism takes that thought and then says, when? when the words said that? Well, when they were originally written, what did that author mean by those words in that time? Not as much authorial intent, but how would that author have used the words? All the people, the normal people who just picked up that piece of paper when it was written and read it, what would those words mean then? And the best arguments for he descended into hell in the creed are those words, the meaning of those words when they were written is not the way we first understand those words when we read them in a 21st century context. 
And so we've got to go back and see what did they mean by these words that I am missing or reading differently. That'd help. And then seriously, y'all bully Stephen next week. This is going to be on him. This is going to be great. Resurrection. Why did Jesus have to be raised? The answer is so that we will be raised. If all he did was go down in the grave, we'd go down in the grave with him. But those who are buried with him are also raised with him. That's the whole ballgame. <laughs> that's, that's what we were looking for. We weren't just looking for getting out of the debt that we owed for our sins. We were looking for eternal life with God. And the way you get that is the resurrection. Death is actually conquered. Not just Jesus paid this price and the price won. I fought the law and the law won. No, he fought the law and he won. (laughs) He's raised from the grave. And then even beyond that, ascended, there's this great picture of ascent with Jesus, ascended from the tomb, raised alive, seen by many witnesses, but he's not done being raised at that point, is he? No, he will ascend to the Father. And only then, when you can't get any higher, he has been risen as far as someone can be risen in the known universe, then he sits down, finished. This is a glorious picture of Christ from the absolute bottom of the created universe, descended into hell. And where this thing ends is with him sitting down. Uh, Absolutely amazing. So resurrection and ascent. And then he's coming again. The last phrase in the creed about Jesus. He's coming again to do what? Judge the living and the dead. Those are two affirmations that we need to uh, remember and hold to tightly. He's coming again as a glorious promise. He'll come back for us. He sent us his spirit as a down payment. He will always be with us even to the end of the age, but he will come back. This is not all there is. This is the thing we always laugh about when we uh, did the Sunday school class and we talked about end times view and we talked about preterism and how like, this is it, you guys, this is the new heavens and the new earth. And then we all look around like, oh no, oh please no. No, this, this is what Christ died for? Was this broken world of strained relationships and sadness and decay and sorrow? I don't know. No. Now he's coming again because he's gone to prepare a place for us, a new heavens and a new earth that will be free from these things. Uh, and so that's great news. He's coming back. But he's coming back and he will judge the living and the dead. There's nothing that will be unseen or unaccounted for by Christ. Your sin, all of them, individual sins, and every sin that has ever been committed will either be pointed to on the cross, paid for there, or handed back to you as an IOU. You owe something for this. Either that debt is paid on the cross or we have a debt to pay. That's it. And so it's important to remember he sees all and we will give an account 
because he is coming to judge. You do not escape his oversight. That's fascinating when we read Psalm 17 for the sermon today. David mentions that as a comfort to him. The fact that God sees all and knows the deepest, darkest parts of David's heart, he sees as a comfort. We got to get there, don't we? <laughs> I'm, I'm not immediately there. Immediately, you find it terrifying. The thing that you didn't do, but you thought, he knows. You think, mm, that's no good. And David says, oh, it's my comfort. It's my comfort that because he's that, there is eternal life for me. If he were anything less than that, I couldn't walk in holiness because he couldn't show me my sin. If he were anything less than that, he wouldn't know that I love him because my love is so feeble and so inadequate and so frequent to fail. But because Christ knows all, he knows that I actually love him. And that's David's comfort. 